0: Hi, I'm Keith Deason, and this is From the Ground Up, a podcast about how we make what we make, the materials, the tools, and the stories behind the things we build. It's 1966, London, England. Rock and roll is inescapable. The Kinks, the Zombies, Cream, the Who, and of course the Beatles have taken over the airwaves around the world. The City of London has become the epicenter for pop culture and fashion not only of England, but almost anywhere. Just about every teenage boy alive is dreaming of picking up an electric guitar, walking out on stage, and playing to a crowd of thousands of screaming fans. Many are following that dream into town halls, pubs, onto street corners, and just about anywhere else that has a stage. Playing these small gigs, parties, and any gathering that needs tunes for barely enough money to cover transportation, trying to become the next John, Paul, George, or Ringo. This particular evening, one lanky, nervous kid is walking out on stage for the first time with his band at the Molsey Boat Club on the foggy banks of the River Thames, holding what will become one of the most iconic instruments of all time, an electric guitar that he built at home with his dad at of Scraps named the Red Special. Moving forward 19 years and 20 miles to July 1985 at Wembley Stadium in London. The boy, now a man with a lion's mane of wild hair and a crisp white shirt and jeans, is standing with his band in front of over 70,000 fans, and is being livecast to over a billion more in 110 countries. The world is literally watching. The set begins, and it isn't long until he's wailing away on that very same guitar, almost entirely unchanged since the day he built it, and one of the greatest live performances ever recorded in rock and roll history. The band Queen, its guitarist Brian May, and his trusty Red Special are officially rock legend. But back in 1963, unable to afford a real guitar, the future looked a lot different to May. A devoted student, he excelled in school and was on track to go to college and even graduate school, like his father Harold wanted him to. Harold was an electronics engineer in the Royal Air Force during World War II, and designed landing systems for the Concorde for a living. He was exceptionally talented, having set up a workshop in the family's spare bedroom, where he built many of their appliances by hand, including the television. While Harold knew he couldn't afford to buy his son a professional guitar, he figured he could probably make one that was just as good. The first problem became where to find the materials to do so. You see, electric guitars had only risen to popularity in the last 15 years or so, and the parts were not cheap or easy to come by. Los Angeles. 33 years before Harold and Brian set to work, another man was having a similar issue. Except instead of trying to make an electric guitar, he was toiling away trying to make THE electric guitar. George Beecham had been working in guitar manufacturing for the past decade or so, having been a steel guitar player dissatisfied with the poor sound projection many of these instruments had when played with the band. He sought to make a louder guitar, and had been minorly successful through mechanical modifications in the past. His last venture, however, imploded, due to volatile partnerships and George now found himself without a job or a new project. He had been chasing the dream of a fully electric guitar for years, as had many others, but now it was time to really get to work. Beecham started experimenting with various PA systems and microphones, finding eventual success with a prototype, a single string guitar made from a two x four with a pickup from a Brunswick electric phonograph. He was finally on the right track. At the time, it was known that passing metal through a magnetic field could cause electrical current in a nearby wire coil. Taking this into account, George wound a coil around six metal poles, each one positioned under a string. He then took two large, broad, horseshoe-shaped magnets and surrounded the entire apparatus, including the strings themselves. Working at his dining room table, George had to wind the coil using the motor from his washing machine. It worked incredibly well. Beecham enlisted his friend Adolf Rickenbacker to help him with the manufacturing, and the electric guitar was born. While popular with a few professionals, jazz musicians, and some blues players, The electric guitar didn't really come into its own until the 1950s, with the birth of rock and roll. New designs by companies like Fender and Gibson had turned what was seen as a novelty into the heart and soul of American music. The guitarist, once drowned out by drums and other instruments, was now loud and clear, out in front of their band, and at the forefront of pop culture. Brian and his father had opted to build a hand-cranked pickup winding device for their project and spare their mother the inconvenience of taking apart the family washing machine. Brian was able to wind the fine copper wire thousands of times around a couple of button magnets he'd bought at the hardware store, using a bicycle odometer to keep count. The Maze had come up with all sorts of ways to gather and use materials in this manner. Without access to professional parts or tools, they scavenged what they needed and scrounged to buy what they couldn't make at home. They used only hand tools, and along with Harold's characteristic perfectionism, it became an incredibly long and detailed process. The main structure of the body was made from a hard oak section of an old dining table. The neck was made from a mahogany mantle, already 100 years old at that point. It was full of nail and bug holes which Brian filled with matchsticks, an old carpenter's trick, as he carved it to shape. The outer portion of the body was made with a sort of engineered hardboard, faced with a veneer called blockboard. The body was finished with several coats of a brand of lacquer called Rustin's Plastic Floor Coating. Whenever faced with a difficult portion of the build, The maze would toil away until they reached a solid solution, no shortcuts were taken, and every iteration was documented, studied, and improved upon until they were satisfied with the work. Without knowing much about how guitars work, it might be easy to underestimate how amazing the Red Special truly is. Harold and Brian, through their exhaustive and painstaking process, came up with design solutions that were on par with or even exceeded those of contemporary manufacturers. The tremolo system, which allows the player to alter the tension of the strings via a control or whammy bar, is one solution that blew the other guitar designs out of the water. The ability to rapidly change the pitch on the strings is a staple of any professional rock player's guitar, and so Brian's would be no different. They spent a huge chunk of their time figuring out this very complex system, and came up with version after version in their dedicated testing bed for the device. They needed to get as close to a frictionless design as possible, The whole contraption rests on a knife blade, tempered with case hardening compound over a stove burner. The strings ride on rollers to further eliminate friction. Brian made each roller by hand using a drill as a lathe. A tremolo system relies on heavy duty springs to return the bent strings back to their original tuning once released. Most guitar designs use tension springs in the back of the guitar to pull the strings into place. The Red Special flips this around and uses valve springs from an old motorcycle as a compressive force in the front of the body to push the apparatus back into position. The control arm itself was made from a piece of bicycle luggage rack, tipped with a part of one of his mother, Ruth's, knitting needles. A first time guitar builder and his teenage son had accomplished a feat of engineering and design that was out of the reach of some of the most experienced professionals in the world, in a spare bedroom with a bunch of scavenged parts. And they didn't stop there. The pickups on most guitars are wired in parallel, allowing a switch to choose between them and change the tone of the sound according to their position on the body. They're also typically wired in phase to create as full a sound as possible. Brian didn't want to restrict himself to any one type of sound, so he and Harold did something unprecedented. They wired the pickups in series, adding a row of switches that turn on and off each individual pickup and another row that switches the polarity of the pickup, toggling it into or out of phase. This switch matrix allowed the Red Special to output a number of tones and sounds far greater than anything else available at the time, and most guitarists who have managed it since have copied May's design. The love and care and attention to detail put into this guitar was beyond compare. Harold and Brian had built one of the most advanced and innovative pieces of technology available to any guitarist at the time. In fact, the only modification Brian made was to purchase some professionally manufactured pickups due to a strange sound issue with his homemade versions when he bent the strings. The build had also brought them closer together. The guitar symbolized to Brian the lengths to which his father would go to make sure his son wasn't found wanting, despite their modest means. The old lady, as Brian refers to the instrument, served him well from his first performance with his band called 1984 up to the formation of Queen. Throughout it all, Brian had been working his way through university, studying physics, and then making his way through a doctorate program in astrophysics. However, as Queen's popularity took off, Brian felt he had to choose, and in turn, disappoint the man who had worked so hard to get him there. Harold didn't understand, or didn't want to understand, Brian's eagerness to throw away his career in academia to become a pop star. Brian would often plead with his dad, the man who built the guitar he was still using to perform to sellout crowds around the world, to understand that this was their hard work paying off. His success in music was a result of everything he had learned while they worked together those two years on their masterpiece. Still, it would take a family crisis to bring the two back together. Their coldness toward each other had driven Ruth into terrible distress. It took her being hospitalized after a nervous breakdown to prompt her family to bury the hatchet. Shortly after her recovery, Brian flew his parents to New York to watch his band perform a sold out show at Madison Square Garden. In 1977. The crowd was amazing. Their response to the band was vivid and electrifying. Afterwards, Harold took his son's hand, shook it, and told him that he finally understood and was okay with Brian's choice. He had actually wanted to take off after leaving the RAF and join a band, but with a wife and the new child on the way, he needed job security. Watching his son chase the dream he himself had abandoned was a difficult thing for Harold, and as Brian became wealthy and famous, he couldn't help but feel like a failure himself. After admitting this later in life, his son assured him that he was a wonderful father. Harold was able to pass on his values and his knowledge, his curiosity and ingenuity to Brian through their work together. Despite not believing in his path as a musician, he never stopped believing in his son's potential. His son, as a result, had become an incredible person. He was one of the most influential musicians of all time in unparalleled success, and eventually also held a PhD in astrophysics. To this day, Brian still uses the red special at every performance. When it's unavailable, he uses replicas that are built to excruciatingly accurate detail, though he says he can feel the difference. Harold passed away in 1991. The guitar serves as a constant reminder. Each motorcycle spring holds the memories of countless hours at the workbench. Each matchstick-filled wormhole and carefully wired switch, a lesson in Harold's motto, which Brian still lives by today. If anything's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. Tim Sway is the founder of New Perspectives Music, a company in which he manufactures instruments from reclaimed and recycled materials. An avid upcycler and reclaimer himself, I asked him for his insights into building guitars using salvaged materials, and about spending time in a shop with his son, Vance. So, how'd you get started building guitars, and what led you to using reclaimed materials for them?
1: Uh, I, as a, a young musician, I always wanted to make my own guitar, and I was I was renting from a cabinet maker, and uh, he was a woodworker. He played a little guitar, and and I told him that, and uh, he was like, "Oh, you're nuts! It's too much work. We could never do it." And this is a professional woodworker, you know, and like a week later I walk by a shop and I see out there and I see a piece of wood cut on the shape of a guitar and a book on the table saying how to make, called how to build a guitar, you know? And I was like, what, what, you know, I was like, Hey, no fair. And, and, you know, and he's like, Oh, I think I can do this. And I was like, well, you have to teach me. And um, so that was my first workshop experience was I started with making guitars and we were, as I was telling you before, I mean, we were buying mahogany and ebony and all this expensive, you know, imported wood. And, um, and it was expensive and we were messing up and we were thrown in the fireplace and, and, you know, that just, it sort of, you know, rung a bell in my head. And this is back in the 90s when wood still grew on trees and nobody really cared. Nobody used words like reclaimed or upcycled really yet, not in my world at least. Um, but I would sit there and I'd sand and I'd think about the footprint and the, and the, it's like this tree grows in, in Africa and now it's here. And I was thinking about all of its journey and the boats and the, the laborers and the banana republics around the laborers. And, and um, it just sort of started to weigh on me, which and uh, turned into, you know, 20 years later um into me being who i am so now i i make them out of locally sourced and reclaimed materials to sort of show that we don't need to do this we don't need to destroy these you know these rare expensive and, and you know trees that are all over the world to make guitars to make them sound good and um there's there's a whole debate about tone wood you know which is a a big thing with musicians and um i agree that there is tone in wood Um, but I think that it is the least important part of the tone chain when you're playing music. It is the absolute least important part. Um, everything else is more important, starting with the technician that is uh, playing the notes. That's where the tone starts. And then the amplifiers and then the pickups and the PA, you know, like the wood. And I've proven it. I mean, I have literally made a two, a, a stand up bass out of a two by four. Does it sound as good as a real stand-up
0: bass? No, but it works, and I can make it sound good and do the job. You know, yep. it's like yeah. if you're if you're painting the Mona Lisa, you can worry about what the reflection of the hills looks like in our eyeballs. Otherwise, paint the face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, one of my favorite stories to tell is uh,
1: that I used to play at the ski resort in um, in Vermont, and I'd play. I, we were the house band. We play every weekend on a second stage, and then these bands, these touring bands, would. You know, come through on the main stage, and so we knew them every year. We'd see them, and and this one guy comes through. You know, I'd known him for years, and and he's showing me his new bass guitar that he had custom made at one of the medium-sized factories. You know, and uh, he's like, "Oh yeah, it's made a coca bowl of Coca-Cola this, and I got ebony that, and I've got you know unicorn horn this, and I've got." And he's like bragging about this. It took him six months, and they had to they had to destroy actually a piece of the ozone just throw it away just to make this. You know, like <laughs> this whole the ridiculous footprint of this guitar. And uh, I was like looking at it and it was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. No doubt about it. It was a work of art. And I said to him, I said, oh, well, how did you get, did you get paid more tonight? You know? And he's like, well, no, I mean, I got paid the same as me too. And I said, and I just played mine on a snow ski. So, you know, like like, literally, what are you doing? (laughs) You know, did the people dance harder? Did you make more money? What's the point? Uh, And so I just like to push those
0: buttons a little bit, you know? Uh, What's the ratio now? Like, what do you kind of use? What do you, what do you use off the shelf? what do you manufacture yourself and what do you want to change going forward with that?
1: I have made guitars where I've made the bridge and, uh, and I've made a bunch of the other hardware and I, and I am still dabbling in that. But right now I kind of stepped back from that to just focus on the, the necks and the bodies. And then once I've got a sort of system down for that, I I plan to eventually make everything. Uh, I want to, you know, wind my own pickups and I want to do it out of, you know, scrapped wire. And, but the, but the thing is, is that I have to make them, to a quality and to a level that just anybody can go and buy it and work with it. That's my goal. I don't want it to just be an art piece. It has to be a functioning, like blue collar musician can, can buy this thing and play it without any sacrifices, without any compromise, because that's the only way you're, you're gonna convince people. They're not gonna say, oh, well it's made or reclaimed and it saves the earth, but it doesn't stay in tune. I still buy it because it's no, it has to, it has to be just just as good and just as efficient as everything else out there. And be better, you know, with, with its footprint and its story behind it, and so that's that's my my
0: lofty goals right now. Cool. So, so and you've built stuff out of new materials too. So, is there what's the difficulty scale reclaimed versus off the shelf new, you know, what traditional materials? It's you know,
1: it, it it's not really that much more difficult. There's a couple of things like you know nails are always a problem when you're when you're cutting. If there's a nail you miss, like that's the kind of stuff which doesn't happen as often with fresh new lumber but it still does with that sometimes because there's some civil war bullet buried in a tree you didn't know about or something stuff does happen but um yeah really to me that's the artistry of it like uh I mean, you know the the assemblage of the materials that's what makes it really artful to me and i and i take pride in that like to, if i just went and bought a big chunk of wood like i did 20 years ago and i started making them and was cutting i just there's there's nothing that's just boring to me. I don't see the point. Like anybody can do that, you know. But you know, if I go, you know, break a couple shocks in my truck to rescue a deck that was an hour and a half away, and you know, <laughs> and like, and then get manage to get this stuff all apart and you know, and uh, and make a guitar of it, like that's that's awesome, you
0: know. Mm-hmm. You use CNCs and you use power tools, obviously, because you're you know not in Colonial Williamsburg. Yeah, <laughs> um, exactly. But like, how 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 has technology helped? shape like your process and how you make guitars not just the cnc but maybe just the internet and anything
1: yeah uh the technology plays a huge role you know when i first started making guitars like i wanted to make one for myself you know and and i made one and it it took me a hundred hours or whatever i don't know how long it took um probably very similar to you know the brian may's experience and i wasn't with my father i was with my my landlord it turned out to be (laughs) but it was like it was that sort of journeyman apprentice you know type of a relationship that we had and he was very generous with his tools but it was just yeah it was all you know, table saw bandsaw hand planes, you know, that's all we were using. And, um, and I, uh, I, I loved it. Like I, I, like I, I had these big dreams. It's like, I'm going to make guitars for a living. Cause I know how to make a guitar and, um, And then I, so I I made one for my buddy and it took me a hundred hours and it was a $500 guitar. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, so that means I made five cents an hour on this and it it was really discouraging. And, and so then as I, as I set forward now, like, and I, I, when I started making guitars again, you know, now 20 years later, the reclaimed thing, I, let me see if I can make them out of reclaimed and, you know, like legitimate guitars, not just my silly ones. And I did. And, and it didn't take me a hundred hours, but it took me a long time and it was still I can't charge and, you know, what I want to charge and make a product. So what the automation has done is is it made it possible for me, an individual, to run a small business where I can compete in every sense with these large factories, with the Fenders and the Gibsons. I firmly believe that with me and my one, you know, expensive machine and my laptop, I can compete with them. I can make a guitar and sell it for the same price as them that's just as good as theirs, um, you know, but it's reclaimed. And I don't lose my shirt on it. It's like it's worth it doing it for me. Um, that's what it's done is it's made a, my really 20-year dream a reality. Um, and if you, don't want, if, if you want to talk about
0: working with Vance a little bit.
1: Oh, well, absolutely. Um, Vance is my 8-year-old my son. And um, he part of his education, in my opinion, is, is coming to the shop with me because I, my, my little thing is that I feel like uh, children need to learn to use their hands, their heart, and their mind equally. Um, and in conjunction with each other, and uh, most schools don't really do that, you know. So it's very like today he was at my shop pulling nails. I just had him pulling nails out of old fence boards today, and he loved it. He had a blast. He was learning eye-hand coordination. He's learning, you know, about systems and uh, efficiency and practice. And he's getting fresh air. You know, he's learning about environmental issues. We we stopped to watch a spider. It was great. <laughs> he made me for my birthday. He took this piece of cardboard and he bent it with a, a rubber band on it, and I put my arm in it. And uh, you're supposed to put your arm in it almost like a sling. And then when you flex your wrist it and you pluck the rubber band and as you flex your wrist, it bends the rubber band and makes the pitch change a little bit. And uh, and he like invented this instrument. It's
0: freaking that's, cool. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> that's fantastic. So, he, yeah, it's great. I mean, because yeah. working with you, he gets to think about that stuff in a different light. You know, He's coming at it with, with like the freshest set of eyes, you know. He's not thinking yeah. about it like, oh, I want to build a guitar. I need a neck. I need a body. I need, you know, a bridge and pickups. He's like – Oh, this made a cool sound. And when I stretch it on my arm, it does this, you know?
1: Yeah. He's just exploring his world. And, uh, it's, it's fun to see that. And, you know, I I always tell him that, um, I don't really care about teaching him things. Like I just want to teach him how to learn. Um, because if you know how to learn, you can find the things that you need to find, you know? And that's, that's like, and learning isn't just like, you know, Googling something, you know, learning is learning how to, to, to put something together and, and then, and then make it again and then have it fall apart and then fix it. And You know, and pulling nails out of boards like that's that's learning how to learn because, you know, you 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 sit and you, you pull 50 nails out one way and then you try it another way and you go, oh, this way works better. Like, I can tell him this way works better, but it's so much more gratifying if you discover it yourself,
0: you know, and that's how you learn to learn. From the Ground Up is an ongoing experiment. It is now and will always be available free of charge. If you'd like to hear an extended version of the interview with Tim Sway, you can do so by supporting me at patreon.com slash All supporters have access to behind-the-scenes and bonus content, and the following patrons deserve a special thanks for going the extra mile to make this show possible. Jeff Shaw, a.k.a. Roadie Jeff, Maker Geek, Johnny Builds, and Vincent Ferrari. Until next time, this is Keith Decent saying, later makers.